chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. Why don't you just read the email? Yeah, why not? Hi guys, my name is James, and I've been following the Insons podcast from the beginning. I am emailing because listening to the podcast, I think it's amazing when you unpack Greek and Hebrew words we see in the Bible to help gain a far better understanding of how they relate to our true story. For example, Blaine recently unpacked the word Elohim. With this at stake, would you guys consider doing a podcast in which you talk about how to unpack these words, how to find the gold in the scriptures that so often gets passed over, practical techniques, books, websites, without needing to be fluent in Greek and Hebrew. I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. James, your email came at an interesting time because we happen to be thinking about those questions. Yeah, and so... We got a little bit jazzed on this one, thinking that we could do something a little bit different this week. Pulling back into the studio, a few teachers, leaders, thinkers, scholars that have walked down this road further than we have. So the overall uh, theme here is, what does it take to read the Bible well? And uh, in sort of being students of the Bible as the body of text that testifies to Jesus and reveals his story, where do you start? Understand the type of book you're reading, the genre of the book. That's the voice of Dr. Trumper Longman III. You may remember him from an earlier podcast. It would be wrong for us to go any further without bringing back in the scholar of the Old Testament. Because genre triggers reading strategy, a... um, and 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 so you need to keep that in mind and think deeply about it. I think one of the issues when it comes to Genesis 1 to 11 is that uh, people don't think deeply enough about what type of literature it is, and they sometimes only think in terms of either it's myth or it's straightforward history. And then the other thing to keep in mind, and when you first hear this, it's a little unsettling, but... The Bible was not written to us. It was written to a specific, uh, the different books of the old Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, were written to specific audiences who were contemporaries of the human author answering questions that they had. But the Bible was written for us. You know, that's what we mean when we say it's canonical. The church recognizes that this is authoritative writings that give us our standard of faith and practice, but it was written in Hebrew and Greek, and uh, and even to translate from Hebrew and Greek involves a lot of interpretive decisions, but none that would obscure the important basic message of Scripture. This has been huge for me on two levels. One, there is a doctrine of biblical clarity. If you sort of dig in to the doctrines that surround the scriptures. How are we meant to engage them? What can we trust them to do? One is called clarity. And 
what it says is, you won't miss the point. Don't worry. Right. I love that piece. It's huge just to go, uh, the, the information about Jesus uh, making a way into the kingdom of God for you is unmissable. In Tremper's book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, he just says it this way, you'd have to work really hard to mess it up. It's hard to miss Jesus and his role in the Bible. On the other hand, the idea that we actually have a reading strategy is hugely important. Like, you might get into a debate with a friend over the meaning of a text, but what you're really debating is how to read it. And there are people who go, you know, I just read the Bible and do what it says. Right. And there's so many conversations these days where it's like, that. well, that wasn't meant for you. Or that's kind of confusing because it sounds like a poem. Or we try to say, well, that's really a metaphor. And I actually took a class from Tremper back in college, and he was adamant about understanding the genre and style of the piece, whether it's the Song of Songs. He's like, this isn't a metaphor. This is this is explicitly trying to teach you something of God if you're willing to enter into the style that it is. Right. For example, working out of a psalm when David says, though 10,000 fall at my right hand, uh, we can be confident in the context of his motive in the psalm that David is not saying up to 10,000 guys, you're fine. With that number, you're okay, right? right well, right. we know, and in some of them it's obvious, where he's just saying, even though a massive number of people would die beside me. You will preserve me. But if you track into the narrative books, it's hugely important to know that they are genres with stylistic conventions that come out of the period in which they were written. Right. And people like Frederick Beekner and Dallas Willard, I read them and then they'll drop these asides that indicate they understand that the Old Testament books are written in a genre. And so when it says they went into battle and put to flight Canaan and killed 10,000 people, it's not actually interested in particular genres in a statistical register of the outcome of a battle. It's a stylistic device going, lots of people died. And this is where Tremper says, the Bible is accurate in everything it intends to teach. Not all genres are telling you about history. Some are telling you about the quality or significance of historical events. So we're beginning with this 50,000-foot view, which is begin with trying to understand the context, begin with trying to understand the genre. The basic message of the Bible is clear. Um, the message of salvation is really clear to anyone who reads the Bible. But uh, on the issues that we're talking about now and on other uh, issues. Uh, the scriptures need to be interpreted. And while I believe very strongly that the Bible is without error in everything that it intends to teach, I'm also very aware that our interpretations, including mine, aren't inerrant. But our goal is to hear the voice of God, who's the ultimate author of scripture. God speaks through human authors who are embedded in their uh, cultural context. One other thing that we have to say about context is that context is not going to make your Bible reading worse ever. 
you know, you're not going to come to a book and go, but you realize that letter was just being written to blah, 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 with the just in there to say, not as significant as you think, not as impactful as you think. When you put yourself in the position of the audience of these letters, uh, like really understanding what their questions were about themselves in the world, suddenly you will realize, you will experience how incisive and insightful uh, and what a profound relief every text of the Bible is. That's something that I would want to say to people as they start to study is actually trust yourself. Like what pops out at you, like that probably is the Holy Spirit saying, this is a place to dig in. And then they could they could start running after that word. Well, what's, what's behind that? And, and start running with that. That's Scott Morin, followed by the voice of his wife, Mandy Nelson. You might recognize them. We've had them on the podcast before. Scott and Mandy are both scholars of biblical languages, especially ancient Hebrew. They've led studies for a real long time now. And when it comes to understanding the language and how it works, uh, these guys are Jedi. Initially, maybe it is practical advice, but to trust themselves and what they're noticing. That's good, because I think I'm worried about becoming like a heretic, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> just, just misinterpreting something so poorly. And I don't know why I think it's like zero or a hundred. Like I'm going to get it spot on or I'm going to be a heretic. I don't know why those are my two options. But I love that, that that piece of trust yourself. You're actually sort of told that you're going to be okay. One thing I would say to what you're saying, Sam, about the interpretation is I think a lot of times we think there's only one. And I think scripture is so amazing that even their interpretation, there's probably at least some truth in their interpretation. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe there's some false in their interpretation, but they can trust something of their interpretation and then hearing other elements of interpretation. So yeah, I think that's good that there's multiple layers to the interpretation. God can communicate so much and so many things through one verse or one passage. There's not one right only way to interpret a word or a passage. Okay. So it's clear that at this point in time, you guys have a pretty big toolkit and a lot of history engaging ancient Hebrew and Old Testament texts. What are, what are some of just the main things to know when you approach either the Old Testament as a whole or the thing that is uh, the Hebrew literature that composes it or the languages. You can take it any of those. I think one of the biggest things to consider when diving into any text, Old Testament or New Testament, is consider the context. That's probably basic for anyone who wants to do interpretation or exegesis or even just become more familiar with the story. Okay, this piece on context is huge. Um, to drop it into a different metaphor, um, Dad often uses a story of there's been a car accident and it's your daughter or it's a friend and you walk up to that person and you want to know the story. And if the story is they were at a party, they were drinking, they caused an accident, they were drunk, like it was dangerous, your reaction is very different. The implications of the actions are are telling you things based on the story. And if the story is that they were at a party and they left early and they didn't drink anything and they were hit by somebody else, that they were actually innocent, then your 
reaction to the totaled car and their safety is super different. And so if you take out the context and all you have are these individual players and facts, you actually have a massive amount of interpretation that can swing to completely different degrees. And so, yes, we hit that with Dr. Longman, but Scott and Mandy, you're hitting us with that again and giving that piece of like, you can trust yourself. It's going to be okay. Engage it and like begin in whatever piece you're particularly looking at. Spend some time there and, and begin to look back and look forward and see maybe what the intended purpose was in that moment. Know that God is going to speak to you in your moment through it as well. But the context is bringing us down from 50,000 feet to probably more like 10,000 feet. This is helpful when we start reading books of the Bible that cover uh, the same material but are different. For example, two easy ones. Why is the Gospel of John different than the Synoptic Gospels? And one of the reasons is it is, now this is contested, but presumed to be uh, the, the last written gospel. It comes very late. John is an older man, and he has told the stories of Jesus over and over and over and over again. And so he actually knows how like he's meditated on uh, the character and nature of Jesus. He's meditated on Jesus's uh, role in salvation, a la the central role. And so he arranges events differently to communicate the nature of God. He puts the clearing of the temple very early in the story, whereas if you look at the Synoptic Gospels, especially Matthew, the clearing of the temple is one of the, one of the last events. If you look at Matthew and you go, All right, about when was this written? Pretty early on in the life of uh, the church. What is it for? Well, it was sort of written to a predominantly Jewish audience, helping them see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah. So read Matthew in, he did this to fulfill what it says in the prophets. He did this to fulfill what it says in over and over and over again. But then, I mean, it's, it's even interesting if you look at all of the Gospels and go, where are we in the moment of salvation history that we're all a part of? And to go, the Gospels came after the letters of Paul, everybody. That's an interesting thing to know and helpful in reading those texts. If you go back, Old Testament example, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles uh, cover a lot of the same material, but they're very different books. And so you have to go, where in history, where in this story of uh, the faithfulness and the, and the rescue of God down through the ages are we? Because when we understand where we are, we can understand what question the author was trying to answer that was being raised by his contemporaries. First and Second Chronicles are written after the Babylonian exile. And so the, the audience has a different set of questions like, who are we? What is our identity? Where do we come from? And then what does that mean about where we're going? That the earlier audiences of First and Second Kings didn't have. That's why First and Second Chronicles open with these genealogies, First Chronicles, that's just overwhelmingly huge. I think it's six chapters long of just name after name after name. So understand where you are in the story, aka where you are in history, 
and it will help you understand what the text is trying to do. Yeah, and the context also drops down into the moment. Just the things that Jesus will say and do in the New Testament. Is it the Sabbath? Who's watching? Try and fill out those scenes because the context of a word, of an action, is is filling out all of the color and all of the flavor of that moment. If I'm reading a letter in the New Testament, I would like to know who it was written to. And often a study Bible is going to have some of that in it, just a little bit of a page or two as a foreword to that text. So similarly, when I dive into something in the Old Testament, I want to know a little bit of the trajectory. I know it's all shooting towards the New Testament and Jesus as the answer to a lot of the questions and problems raised in the Old Testament. But for me, I, I want to start. I'm actually working my way backwards through the New Testament right now. It's really an interesting thing. But I, I always start with, okay, remind me again, who wrote this? Who was the intended audience? There's going to be truth in there for me. But I want to start with that overarching framework. That's I'm, I can be pretty linear at times, but that's helpful. So that when I read about the churches that are being spoken to in the beginning of Revelation, I know there's something in there for me. But they were written to specific peoples in a different time period. So I'm not applying everything when it's not meant to be put on the exact same way. Okay. So in the past, you guys have talked about how this is obviously not English and things get translated and transliterated. Is everything transliterated? And what does that mean? And what words do we particularly apply that to? Okay. So... Everything that you understand on an English level would be a translation. Anything, names and places are mainly that are what is transliterated. So I'm sure people don't necessarily know what that is. For example, David, the way you would say his name in Hebrew is David. And so they took the sound of that Hebrew word, David, and they put it into English and we get David. But what would be unique about Hebrew is that his name is not capitalized. It's not a proper name the way we have proper names in English. So the reader would be coming along and they would hit those three letters, David, and they would hear the meaning of those three letters instead of, oh, this is a person that has a meaningless name in one sense. So David means beloved. And so one thing I would say for the reader is that plug that in when you're reading it, or at least keep it in mind that beloved did this, that, or the other thing. And it changes the feel of what is being communicated in that story, which I think is no surprise that he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. I mean, like, no surprise. His name is beloved, a man after like it, it make it like it just makes sense. One other example would be Jesus, where his name means salvation. So Jesus went over to this village and did that. Jesus went over here, or salvation went over here and did this. Salvation went over here and did that. You know, like there's, all of a sudden you're seeing like, oh, like there's a a feel to what is happening, not just a person only. If you go back even farther into the Old Testament before Jesus shows up as Jesus in New Testament, you actually have back in the book of Numbers, a character named Hosea. And Hosea is one of the 12 spies sent into Canaan, essentially one of the 12 Israel spies to scout out the land. Well, a few verses after he first shows up, 
he's actually renamed by Moses as Yehoshua. So Hosea becomes Yehoshua. We know that as Joshua. Joshua, that name in Hebrew, essentially is the same in English for, or I'm sorry, in Greek for Jesus. And so if you go even farther back, like Joshua was essentially a, a foreshadowing of who Jesus was going to be. Hosea means essentially deliverer, right? Hmm. But deliverer wasn't Moses's apprentice down the road. He had his name changed to Yahweh is deliverer. Yahweh is salvation. And then he steps into leading the people into Israel in partnership with Yahweh into the land of Canaan that becomes Israel. So it's really important to know what names and places mean, because often they do, they just unfold things so much more deeply. Right. So if we can just jump in and say, how key understanding uh, particular words are, especially as millennia now have changed the way that we engage them. Gospel is one such word where, you know, gospel means good news, uh, but we have so much news and it's also meaningless now that we consider good news like a, like a feel-good story. N- whereas news in its traditional significance would be information that was relevant to you and good news would be information that was relevant to you that relieved a problem. And so, I, you know, I have this, uh, I've been trying with limited success in my close church group to go, hey, instead of the gospel for a while, let's just call it the relevant information of Jesus. I think that conveys better what we're trying <laughs> to say. A little sterile maybe, but. Yeah, well, but, but it carries the, you know, you're a cyclist and if I were to go, hey, there's a clearance on the other side of town. The uh, Aero road bikes are 70% off. I'm telling you the gospel. Right. Uh, right? right. <laughs> and it's like when you come to someone, you go, uh, God has become incarnate and relieved every single one of your existential fears. Like, what? Really? How? I remember when we went to Moab the first time and we're in the desert, how much it brought depth to some of the the passages about under the shadow of your wing and these like sheltered places and these oases that when you turn on the faucet, cold water comes out or hot water, like we've lost some of that. And so this piece that they're talking about with salvation with Joshua, like it's huge and it's even more powerful when you remember like the, the context of the Israelites, they're longing for home. They're longing for a land that like transitional place it's just we've got so many layers of meanings now on things. And this is that point where we go like, yes, it's so good to get the word back, then like the root of a name or a place. And also remember that you're looking through the veneer of the 21st century. In which salvation means heaven. Salvation is your fire insurance, like where your soul is going to go. And it's so much better to look back in the story and go, Whoa, salvation is a is a practical consideration of will we survive this war? Do we have a place to live? Can we rely on God to help us in the places of our practical need? It's this it's this general reality of language where language carries a worldview. And so when you start using biblical Hebrew and you, you know, 
the email mentioned, I talked about Elohim in another podcast. It's not enough to say, you know, Elohim could be better translated spiritual being than God and, and then move on. You would have to say, no, no, no. When the biblical writers use the word Elohim, uh, they're coming with a set of assumptions about the nature of the universe, who exists in it, what do they do, what is the spirit realm, what is its meaning for us. And so anything like salvation, anything like spirit realm, anything like a place name, beloved, father, to really get into the richness of these words, we have to dive back into the uh, assumptions about reality that the culture had that was using the words. So you were saying earlier, like, how would we approach scripture? How would we read it? That would be one way is to track on the idea of salvation all through scripture. So if now that a person knows that Hosea essentially means salvation, Yehoshua or Joshua means salvation, Jesus means salvation. Mm -hmm. Now you can actually track like this whole storyline of salvation from Old Testament all the way through New Testament and kind of get a feel for like one of the major themes going from beginning to end. So that'd be one way to read scripture. Okay. What I love about this is it's not just their name means something cool because you go online these days and you can find your spirit animal and what your name means. And it's like, oh, that's, that kind of makes me feel nice. You're, you're looking at the names and what they mean. And then you're looking at the actions, those meanings then take out. And so it's not just, oh, Joshua means the Lord is salvation. It's look what he does when that name is given to him. Look what then the, the theme of that, like, I love that it's take that and now put that name or that meaning into the whole verse or the whole chapter and read it that way. And that's, I mean, okay, there's, there's your Phillips head, everybody. Like that's, that feels massive. Um, uh, for the flathead then, yeah, uh, you guys are hinting at this already, but I know because you explained before that there is a way meaning works uh, relative to language in the development of themes in the Bible, like, you know, where does it appear first? What happens? Could you talk a little bit about how that works? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge concept. Really helpful when reading scripture. Look for the first time a particular word is used. And it is helpful if you want to geek out on Blue Letter Bible, right? Free resource, a little shout out to them and go, well, what, what's the word that's actually in Hebrew in this Old Testament verse? So a, a great example of this would be the word teva. And that word shows up in the story of Moses's birth, Exodus 2. Moses's mom sees him. She really sees him. So she builds this little thing, contraption, often translated basket, and she puts it in the river. And if we look at what that word means in Hebrew, that word is ark. She doesn't build a basket. She builds an ark. Wait a minute. Where have we heard that before? Literally, the only time that that word is used previously is in Noah's ark, in the Genesis 6 through 9 story. And what did an ark do in Genesis 6 through 9? An ark protected life and ushered it into a new way of existing and for the greater good. 
And so if we, if we go, oh man, I know what an arc is. I know how it functioned in this story with the zebras and the cows and so on and so forth. Then when we come to the Moses story and we see that his mother built an ark, oh my gosh, I know this one, right? We know this one. She's protecting life. She's trying to usher in something for the greater good. And so that first time example is huge. Yeah. That's so epic. I see you reaching for a pen. Scott, what just happened? Yeah, well, I was thinking about um, another example of a word. So first usage of the word love in scripture is Genesis 22. Like uh, a father loves a son, Abraham loves Isaac, and then there's potentially going to be a sacrifice. Another major usage after that is in the Joseph story, Genesis 37 of Jacob loved Joseph. And ultimately, in one sense, you could argue that he gets sacrificed at least for a number of years where he's sold into slavery and and uh, all that, how, how that story plays out. So you've got father loves a son in Genesis 22 and a potential sacrifice. Genesis 37, another father loves a son. And when you see that that love, it's almost like you can predict it coming in John 3.16, father loves a son and there's a sacrifice. And and so I would say, like so often the way we read scripture is we, we chop it up either in books or we chop it up in verses, like we'll have our verse of the day, which I do that too. Like that's, that's great. And at the same time, I would say to someone wanting to figure out how to like interpret or understand scripture is try to constantly connect dots. And so when you start to connect dot, because there's dots all over the place. And this would be another example of that, where you got the Genesis 22, Genesis 37, John 3, 16 dot, where it's connecting this father son theme, the sacrifice theme. And so try, you know, try connecting the dots. I've heard that Genesis is a table of contents, like whatever you find in Genesis, you're probably going to find, uh, similar stories all throughout the rest of scripture or other s- stories you're going to find a similar story in Genesis. I've also heard the first five books are also a bit of a table of contents where Torah. Yeah, the Torah books where all of scripture will will be connected back to those themes as well. It's It's really good. And actually the way that that gets walked out is maybe less intimidating than it sounds. I got, to connect the themes binds the story together rather than has this table full of Legos that you're like, well, I'm going to pick up this one today. And they kind of suck to step on, but whatever. Um, that also, when you, when you say you have to like try and connect it all at once, it can feel like the invitation is you better be able to see the whole narrative at once or mm-hmm. you are failing. But I know from experience, you guys have the practice of sitting with something small and really spending time there. And within that, you're going to find the handful of dots that are there. And then you can trace it out from that place rather than needing to start with the grand and working in. What are some ways that maybe you guys could point to, uh, you were mentioning something from Psalms earlier, military terms, um, some like a place that you would sit and then work outward from something like that. Well, I'll go back to the example in Psalms that, we were just chatting about before uh, diving into the recording. And that is there's 
this wonderful word, radaf, which essentially means to chase, to hunt down, to persecute, to pursue. And in Psalm 23, we're literally told that God's loving kindness, this covenantal love and his amazing goodness, his desire for us to have life that produces more life, that is going to radaf us. It's going to hunt us down, persecute us, pursue us. Like I think of the tenacity of a bulldog. Like, uh, not letting go. I'm coming after you with my goodness. And man, I can't move from that concept into 20 other verses without at least pausing for a minute or a day or a week. And really like, God, do I, do I believe that? Your word says it's true. Do I believe it? How are you already doing that? And I, I'm not seeing it. How are you using me to bless others with that kind of loving kindness. What? I mean, a military term, that's fierce, like going after us that profoundly. So to just take a concept and give ourselves permission to sit with that big idea, uh, to sit with those questions that come up from it, I think is going to be very rich. And it's digging down versus just throwing shoots in every direction and hoping we somehow break soil and get a little bit of depth. You know, using Psalm 23, like we're, we're talking about here, I like to compare something like a Psalm 23, which is only six verses, to the city of Jerusalem, which has been destroyed and rebuilt more than any city in the world. And I think it's 36 times or somewhere right around there. And so, like, no matter how deep you go in that city, there's usually always another layer of excavation to do. And I think I read through the Bible in a year or two at times, and that's helpful for overview. And yet, I think it can't be the only way we do scripture because that's, you know, kind of reading horizontal and we got to read vertical sometimes too, where we go down through the multiple layers of, of what's there. And like you said, Sam, finding the group of dots that are in a particular passage, like in those six verses, I think once we did three study sessions on just that Psalm, I think, which was six essentially hours. six hours we with one group. Six we hours. spent six hours just because almost every word in Psalm 23 is like, you know, kind of blow your mind. And then like, like you're saying, Sam, you can draw every single one of those words out to a whole bunch of other passages throughout scripture. So, okay. So this is, this is great because it's leading into what are some suggestions and tools that you would point people to? I know a lot of this, it sounds like private language and like, that's great. There's, there's a piece in which a lot of my time is spent alone wrestling with a, a verse or a word. And, and that's my joke earlier about that zero or a hundred percent. Correct. Like I, on my own, I do have confidence if I'm feeling really good and like really connected and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to really get this. And a lot of the time I honestly don't have confidence like that. I'm going to be the first person to, correctly interpret this without training or resources and I may be discouraged from spending time with something or trying to go deep because that's intimidating so um, for you guys like what's the what are some resources and what are some spaces because we keep mentioning a group setting or having other people around like is it all or nothing like do I do it all by myself do I do it all with a group do I need to be a scholar just Try to address those points as best you can. I love that you said, does it have to be all of this or all of that? I, I think absolutely not. Uh, if I'm always in a group, then I've become wildly codependent on other people. If I'm always isolated in my study, 
I've become it's dangerous. Yeah, too independent. That's I think where heretical thinking often is birthed is in total isolation. Um, if we don't have anything to tether us to relationship with God and each other in a tangible way. I, I would just say one of the greatest resources that's out there right now, in my humble opinion, is the Bible Project. And I'm, I know you two are familiar with that. Uh, I'm guessing anyway, because, you know, it's, it's hot on the scene. And it is so understandable. The church I go to, the children's pastors use it. With the kids. Any adults I've ever shown it to are like, holy we cow, that it, was so easy to understand. We sent it out to clients we know. work with. You yeah. can find it on YouTube, by the way. Yeah, free. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing resource. where They will break down different words, different concepts. They'll link it up to the overall theme with these amazing short animated videos. If you want to go into any book of the Bible, they'll give you about an eight-minute overview in a storyboard form of what's happening. It's so helpful. And it's done by these people who have scholarly level thinking and research and they're fabulous. So one of the best ones, if I could tell one to anybody, that'd be it. I'd say go to the Bible project first. So we mentioned earlier, Blue Letter Bible, that's a free app. You can click on words and find out what Hebrew word is behind something in the Old Testament. You can click on a word in the New Testament, find out what Greek word is behind that, find some meanings. That's a free one. Another free one, an interlinear, for someone who doesn't want to learn Hebrew and Greek, an interlinear can be helpful where it's a word-for-word translation. It'll have the line of Greek words or the line of Hebrew words, and it'll put a an exact translation underneath that word, which could be one to four or five or more words in English, you know? So, like, it helps to isolate, okay, this is all coming from this one word. And it'll be choppy to read, but if a person enjoys... I guess that kind of stuff where you kind of get a different feel, especially if you're familiar with the Bible. If you grew up in the Christian world, sometimes it's fun to read something that's choppy where it makes it slows you down and like, oh, like it's not reading quite the way it used to read for me. So that one is scriptureforall.org. That is the number four in there. So scripture, the number four, all.org. That has both a Hebrew and a Greek interlinear. And then, um, one other free resource, and then I'll give a, a paid resource, the Holy Bible app. And inside there, they've got, I don't even know how many English translations they have in there, but they have maybe 60, I'm not even <laughs> sure. But one of them is the Orthodox Jewish Bible, the OJB. And what they do is they, when they come to a word that they don't want to translate into English because there are probably multiple meanings, they just put the word in there and then it, in Hebrew, in, in, in Hebrew, I mean, it's written out in English, but oh. the Hebrew um, sound and and it would it essentially accuse you like, oh, I need to figure out what that word is and the multiple meanings of it. And so that's that's so those are three free resources. And then you could. OK, yeah, yeah, there's one, too. There's a phenomenal Bible teacher. Ray Vanderlaan has a series called That the World May Know. Uh, some of the attire in the filming process is from the 80s, 90s, and so on and so forth. So you can get a good kick out of the denim and khaki outfits. He's, he's got but, modern ones, too. Okay, that's fair. He's been doing this for decades. He's fabulous. Yeah. So much fun. He knows what he's talking about. And he just makes it applicable. He gives you a few questions to sit with. Historian. And a couple great big concepts to chew on that get into some of the original language roots. If somebody wants to spend money, Logos.com is the best Bible software on the market, probably. So that's another way where you can chase a lot of 
Hebrew and Greek words down. First of all, thank you for the resources. Uh, <laughs> second of all, a lot of those mention sort of the availability of teachers currently. Like that are there are some that are accessible to everyone. There are some that are not. I'm just curious, out of your own story, becoming students of the Bible, hmm. what are some mm-hmm. of the things uh, that have helped you in the discovery of teachers in my peers, the guys I have conversations with, this this strong desire to find Yoda and oh, right. the, the feeling like he doesn't exist. And given that an example is so helpful and illustrative, just kind of going over the years you've encountered and like gleaned from a variety of teachers, how how did that happen? How did how did they come in? And then But there's almost a piece of like Am I missing out on some treasure trove of knowledge by not finding the right or perfect teacher? If I don't find Yoda, have I missed out on a key to the kingdom? Well, I mean, we go back to that verse I read earlier that the anointing is on us and we don't need a teacher. And that forces the issue of can we learn from God and develop enough of a relationship with God to actually learn from God. We don't need a human teacher, I think, is partially what that scripture is saying. And uh, However, there are a lot of scriptures that talk about teachers teaching, being yeah, an sure. office, a gifting. So just to add to it, it's saying you, you can learn directly from God. And it's what? Do not forsake the regular gathering of believers. That's scriptural. You define. You can define church in a million ways. We often have church when we're sitting outside around a bonfire with a few other Jesus-loving friends. I'd call that church. But that helps keep things in check. But I think part of the question is, what if they feel like they can't find Yoda? Yeah. And so, like, I would start to pull on scriptures like that in that moment. Hopefully, teachers will come into their life. Um, teachers, mentors, people who have gone before. And if it doesn't happen, hopefully they don't have to go to despair of like, I'm screwed. But like the Holy Spirit does want to teach us. Uh, Jesus does want to teach us. The Father wants to father us, all that stuff. Um, so I, I don't I don't think they're screwed. No, I think one can learn a lot through podcasts. I mean, Scott and I talk about the kings and queens or the sages in our lives. That the we mentors. never know. That they we they never don't even met. know we exist. Are they been- all alive even? No, no, no. Yeah, of course. Exactly. No, some of them are from millennia ago. And so, yeah, here's one thing they could look for in people, if, you know, because I think I per- I was hoping for the perfect Yoda Blaine my whole life, too, in one sense. And if I kept looking for one person to have the whole package, I was probably never going to find it. So if they were going to look for a character uh, piece in like a mentor, teacher, whatever, someone who can ask questions and give you a chance for some self-discovery, either around scripture, like, you know, if someone's just going to try to force a bunch of answers down a person's throat, I don't know how much we're actually going to learn anyway, but someone who can create some questions like, um, that doesn't just, you know, someone that can get past themselves, like they're not going to make it all about them and their knowledge. And I'm going to pass all this on to you, but like, can they ask a question and, cre- and enter into a conversation where 
the person feels safe enough to ask questions and learn something? There are so many beliefs out there right now. I would just, this might sound super obvious, but it's, it's perhaps not. I would pursue people who I know really radically love Jesus or pursue authors who radically love Jesus alive or no longer alive because there are many teachings and even just saying someone who loves Jesus to me, it, that's actually not narrowing things down perhaps as much as might be helpful these days. There are a lot of people saying they love Jesus and teaching some things that I don't see in the Bible. I actually, I think it's incorrect interpretation. I think it's veering and leading people on some really dangerous paths. So I'm, I just want to add that. Yeah, someone who can ask questions, someone who can stay with them, um, with you, or even just a few good friends, and you have a good book that you go through. I would encourage people, go back to people who root themselves in Jesus and who do believe in scripture, you know, the 66 books put together. Um, I'm pretty strong on that. That might be my black and white personality, but I'm not going to apologize for that. I think it's very important. That's huge. Your point, Scott, I think, is worth restating that as students of the Bible, I think there is uh, a tendency to think that reading and learning the Bible means some level of intellectual assent to mm-hmm. what it describes. And mm-hmm. I love, you know, this is in Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, but he goes, you understand for Jesus' disciples, the measure of having learned something was not reiteration. It wasn't that you could write it on a test. It's that your life was actually changed. And mm-hmm. I think simply to frame as an invitation what you just said, that uh, to view engaging the Bible not as uh, mastering the material, but as actually looking for like discovery in your own heart in a way that changes you. Like that's far better than going, oh, yeah, well... I know all of the names of all the wells, and it's also important. Uh, and here's what they are, and isn't that cool for the development of the story? Mm-hmm. But to right. go, actually, the the aim is a level of personal discovery that results in a kind of change. There's a word, Blaine, that will I think go well with what you just said. Um, it's yada, and you might be familiar with it if you've seen any Seinfeld. They went to the be- bedroom, yada yada yada, um, and. It's um, it's the Hebrew word that means to know, and it's like Adam knew Eve, and she got pregnant. So this word, so knowing is about intimacy. It's not about like you're saying, Blaine. It's not about um, I know I, I can pass a massive Bible test with all that I know about the Bible. You know, when it says for lack of knowledge, the people perish in Scripture. The heart of that is for lack of intimacy people perish. It's not lack of, you don't know enough about the Bible. No, it's, it's for lack of intimacy. People perish like there. So anyways, I, I love what you said. And, and that's, that's the gold in the words, like, you know, to find those little words that have more meaning than just to know. Like, you know, to connect it to intimacy and realize it's not just about head. It's it's about whole being intimacy. So I was in a season where I was receiving a lot of accusation and criticism. Uh, these, these things were reaching my ears about me 
That's the voice of Tim Thornton, who's also been on the podcast before. He's a pastor and a teacher, and he had recently shared a story with me that I think brings us down from 10,000 feet to really like the day-to-day hand holds and heart holds that this reading of scripture can do. And was just feeling very unsettled and uncentered. And I came across this scripture in John 5. And uh, John 5 is, is awesome because it's Jesus. He's healed on the Sabbath and he is under the gun. The religious leaders are trying to kill him. And they're, they are standing in judgment of Jesus. And uh, so if you want to know what to do under accusation, look at John 5. This is, this is Jesus' response to accusation. And um, without spending too much time, it would be so rich to read the whole thing. But Jesus responds in a couple of ways. Uh, the first thing he does is he explains how he derives uh, his identity from the Father. So he's under accusation from the Jews for what he does, and he starts talking about the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. So Jesus takes shelter in the fact that he's not acting on his own initiative, that he's actually an emissary and an ambassador of the Father. And then he starts talking about judgment and about how, uh, this, this is my commentary, Standing in judgment of Jesus is not a very safe place to stand because Jesus has been appointed by the Father to judge you. <laughs> and Jesus comes right out and says it. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And then he comes around to the, the clincher, which is John 5.41. I do not receive glory from men, it says in this translation. And that's pretty interesting. Depending on the translation you have, it, you might see that it says... I am not looking for human praise, or I do not accept praise from humans, or I do not receive glory from men, or I do not receive honor from men. I don't care about human praise. I receive not honor from men. Or in the old uh, NLT, your approval means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Which really smacks of like something out of a movie. Yeah, it's quite a range of phrases, isn't it? And if we were only looking at one translation, it would be easy to misinterpret or miss what Jesus is saying here. Because all throughout the Bible, I mean, let's say you were just reading this one that said, I don't care about human praise. Well, that's pretty interesting. Praise the Lord, Sam. But just he, kidding. He doesn't care. Oh. Glorify the Lord, Blaine. He doesn't accept it. We would miss the meaning of the passage if we don't look a little bit deeper in it. What is Jesus saying here? What are the words? And could we collect a few tools that could bring this home? Well, for me, I came upon this in the time that I most desperately needed it, when I needed to root myself in the Father. And I needed to know, what do you do when you're under the gun? What do you do when you're under accusation? How am I to respond to these assaults verbally that are coming at me and they're trying to tear down my sense of personal value. Well, I looked into this, and it's really cool. The word, uh, you know, obviously we know Jesus does receive praise and glory from men. Other from men, otherwise the Bible would not uh, command us to praise and glorify Him like all the time, right? So I was being a little bit silly earlier, but it it, it just shows how uh, there's an invitation to look deeper. When we read something like this. And in fact, whenever it seems not to make sense, it clashes 
with a mindset I have or something else I see in the scripture, I always take that as an invitation to go deeper. The word doxa is the one that is translated in these various um, translations as glory or praise or honor. And uh, if you look into the word doxa, it gets really fun. So here's Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words definition of doxa. It says it primarily denotes an opinion, estimation, or repute, or good opinion, praise, honor, glory, and appearance commanding respect, magnificence, excellence, manifestation of glory. That's a little bit different than just praise the way we might think of like singing a praise song to God. Let's go a little bit further. Uh, the outline of biblical usage at blueletterbible.com says opinion, judgment, or view. Opinion, estimate, whether good or bad concerning someone. And then it goes on to some of the things that are more familiar to us when we think about praise or glory or honor. A good opinion, uh, splendor or brightness, a most glorious condition or a most exalted state. And then listen to this from Wikipedia. This is really helpful. Doxa in ancient Greek comes from the verb dokein, to appear, to seem, to think, and to accept. It's a Greek word meaning common belief or popular opinion. This is beginning to fill out the meaning of what Jesus might be saying when he says, I don't accept doxa from men. Oh, the difference is huge, right? Like, I don't receive your praise versus I don't receive your verdict. Exactly. Completely different. Yes, totally. So, so doxa could mean brightness or splendor, but it also means an opinion about value. In other words, an appraisal. Mm. And that became my shorthand in the season where I began to need and rely on this verse to ground me in God's love. It, my, my, my mantra became, I don't receive appraisals from men. I don't receive appraisals from men. So when criticism started coming to me, I would have something to say to myself in order to ground me in my identity in God, which was, I don't receive appraisals from men. And then even when flattery or praise came to me in, from different directions or different seasons, instead of getting you know, puffed up in pride and you know, start thinking in the flesh, I could still say, I don't accept appraisals from men. What I love about this story so much is that this is where the relationship with God and the relationship with the word really manifests itself. Like this was just a verse probably one that Tim had read many times and it was in a particular season. It was in unpacking one of the more powerful words of that verse, finding its root, finding the ways that it has all these complex meanings and then allowing it to become this mantra actually was this, it's the shift that I think you're looking for. It's the shift that I'm looking for when I'm going to the word because I want it to matter to me now, today, to this season. Like there's times when I go to it because I know I should. There are times when I go to the word when I like really need a handhold and like that is possible. God's using it. He's speaking through it. He's inside of you. And so like this is exactly where this has gone from 10,000 to like sea level. Like here we are. This is ground level stuff and I love the implications that it has. Now, let me take this just a little bit further. Jesus is saying here that he doesn't derive his value 
from the opinions of men. That's what he, how he responds when he's under accusation. But he also turns the question on the listener. He says, how can you believe when you receive doxa from one another and you do not seek the doxa that is from the one and only God? How can you believe when you derive your value from the opinions of people and do not seek validation from the one and only God? Woof. Woof is the word that comes to mind. And I think we spend too much time in this studio. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> On the there's, there's two things I'm holding after this, Tim. And one is like the power of this verse got dialed from what was already pretty powerful of like, don't receive praise. Don't, don't look for that sort of those accolades they're going to get thrown on you, whatever the many translations happens to be that is in front of you. Like that's already powerful, but then you actually throw in verdict and this orientation of who you are. And this, this dial goes from like a five to a, a 10 or a 20. You're like, Oh man, the stakes just got raised. And this became a verse that's, that's weightier for me. Um, and that, that connects me to the second piece, which you were already talking about and the ways that I think scripture can just bounce off us. If it's like, there's a lot of heavy things. There's a lot of things that could be that sort of five on the dial of like, that's a really important thought, but so was the rest of the chapter. And therefore it doesn't sink in and how Jesus is calling you to go through scripture to experience him, like having those, those deeper relational pieces like it was very intentional for your story right like it was something that was going on in that season that was able to like pull your attention come here dive into this word and then through it you get more life and more of jesus because it's it's like actually really rich like you didn't go knocking and find it was kind of a a boring revelation so i'm just i'm just holding those two things and and woofing with them i guess (laughs) woof on bro (laughs) I love the story from even from a takeaway perspective, because if I were to listen to your life with God reflected in that particular verse and then apply it to what are some good ways to know God through the vessel that is the Bible testifying to Jesus, it would be uh, have a lifestyle of regularly engaging the Bible so that Jesus has the resource available when in season he's going to call your attention to particular stories or turns of phrase that you've missed. And then underneath that, there's a layer of strategies of multiple translations are helpful because they'll show you what's hard to translate. Mm-hmm. What's hard to translate is often uh, the less accessible but often more important culturally situated meaning of a story. Mm-hmm. My favorite example of that right now happens to be Psalm 82 where uh, regularly... Jesus speaking to other spiritual beings, the host of heaven. He says, have I not said you are gods? But most translations either put gods in quotes or make it something else. They'll put like the word rulers there. And you just go, and that is why we're all so disoriented about living in a universe that's also populated with spiritual beings because there's a reality that is not easy to represent when you start translating sort of the cultural frames of language and in English, you can't say gods because we'll all think multiple monotheistic gods, but simply the underlying thing is you have a life with God that goes on time where you need it in your story. 
the Holy Spirit is calling your attention uh, to passages and stories. My question and response is, how have you learned to recognize when the Holy Spirit is calling your attention to a part of the Bible or making a story or word thematic? Mm. A lot of times it's when there is a tension that I'm experiencing, when there is dissonance. You know, like in the passage we looked at, there was a dissonance between I'm constantly commanded to give God praise and glory, but he just said he does not accept it. So instead of just make allowing the cognitive dissonance of that moment to go, ah, it does not compute, I just pass by it, to accept that as an invitation to dig in and look deeper. We all in our culture might be conditioned to a sense of entitlement, like, hey, Bible scholars, give me a translation that makes this easy for me. But like you were saying earlier, it, it can't be easy because we have to go through the words to the living God, to, to the ideas behind the words. There's a Czech proverb that says, learn another language and gain another soul. It's true that English and the mindsets I carry as an English speaker are less than the experience that God wants to have with me and for me to have as I come to understand this world as a part of his kingdom. And so for me to uh, gather up a couple of basic tools to help me uh, understand the larger story so I don't take something totally out of context, to help me then figure out what it primarily means in the context of the passage and what it, how it would have read to its intended audience before I figure out what I'm going to do with it and how I apply it is it, just a few simple um, pieces of gear I can put in my backpack that will serve me so well as I really am transformed by the renewing of my mind. I mean, that's what our time spent in the Word is supposed to do for us, right? It's supposed to transform us by the renewing of our minds as we totally offer ourselves to God, prayer phrasing from Romans 12. So in my life, the tensions have been sort of the, the open door to, to go down a new pathway. When people are stumped or are not getting anything out of it or go, I can't, yeah, I just read blank thing, 1 Corinthians, I, I have no idea what's going on. What kinds of, I don't know, questions, how do you engage that? Hmm. A lot of times when a person is stuck, the best way to open up stuckness is to begin to investigate pain. My case from this John 5 passage is the perfect example, actually. Normally, if I'm stuck, it's because I'm sitting under layers of pain or unresolved issues that have stifled my curiosity and creativity. And so to begin pastorally with a person instead of to um, talk about principles of interpretation or just how great the Bible is when the, they're just not feeling it, uh, I, I would go more of a pastoral tack and figure out where's the stuckness coming from? What is the pain and trauma that called it? What associations are there or agreements about you, God, the world you live in, and uh, the Bible or God's availability? Um, normally, it's, it's in 
story and in pain that um, maybe the earth can can be hard and parched but open a little bit and um, then maybe the the seed of the word of God can fall into that that place and find a good place to grow. The invitation to us is in the scriptures. Jesus said right before this verse, actually, uh, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these things that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is saying, look at the scriptures and search them, but look through the words and come to life which is available in the living God, in God himself. Guys, there is a lot here, and it also feels like just scratching the surface. Um, Each of the folks we've had on, Dr. Tremper Longman III, Scott Moore and Mandy Nelson, Tim Thornton, like they all have resources as well and other people that they point to, and there were the resources that Scott and Mandy pointed out in this, if you want to go dig deeper in there, um, there's lots of other podcasts. This was our swing at something a little bit different, trying to bring you into like the, the grand scheme, the less grand but still grand scheme, the thematic schemes, and then like the very personal schemes. So just trying to bring you down the rabbit hole a little bit and give some of the ways that we've learned to read and think about books and verses and chapters and even particular words. Um, because there's a lot of richness there in any one of those categories. If you want a particular resource from any of those teachers, they have a lot. Uh, you can go to Dr. Tremper Longman III's website for any one of his. No one knows how many books. Even I'd, he doesn't know. I'd recommend his book on Genesis. There was this big project where uh, like a scholar of the period wrote a book on every book of the Bible. That would take a long time to go through, but Scott and Mandy talked about how Genesis is sort of an index of biblical themes, stories, patterns. His book on Genesis is fantastic. Tim Thornton, he actually has a number of books that are really good. Uh, Some of them co-written, Orphan Slave Son being one, about uh, some of the core themes of the Bible that's very relevant to how you actually approach the text. You can find him at the Blackthorn Project, I think most expediently. And Scott and Mandy of Empowering Ranch have a lot of resources and themselves lead studies uh, all over the country. So if you want to make an investment in the biblical joy and literacy of your community, their website is empoweringranch.com. 